singing. And uh, as all of us know, at this point, our uh, venue, uh, led by Rustin, next uh, across our campus, is joining us, as well as our chapel, led by Ray uh, Larson, is joining us, and uh, our Cactus Campus, led by Rick, uh, are joining us right now. And then those watching online, uh, like Pat Sullivan is with us right now. Many of you remember Pat, he's watching online. He texted Neil and told him he looked good in his coat. I don't think I'm gonna get as similar of a text, but anyways, we're, uh, we're glad that all of you are joining us. I, I wanna spend a couple of minutes before I pray and, and dive into our, our text today to uh, talk a little bit about um, why we're celebrating Advent. Uh, some of you grew up in traditions that celebrate Advent every Christmas, and, and some of you, probably many of you, did not. I did not. And so when I first became a Christian, I thought Advent was just one of those, you know, code words that Christians used, you know, to describe certain things like calling me brother and the blood of Christ and sanctification and all these other words I heard. And uh, I, I came to learn rather quickly as a young Christian that, that Advent is a very meaningful thing that many Christian traditions like Methodism have done over the years to usher in the Christmas season. Uh, very simply put, what Advent is, is it's a, a grid that we put upon the Christmas holiday, a biblical grid that imposes some biblical themes that we get out of the birth narrative uh, in the month of December leading up to Christmas. So we celebrate certain themes each week, a different theme each week that is found in the birth narratives of Jesus as we make our way up to Christmas. And those themes, though, are debated which ones you should celebrate, uh, generally fall into the realm of hope, peace, joy, and love. If you've ever read the Christmas story, those are the themes that are mentioned in the birth narratives of Jesus. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And so the devotion that we've given you and other things are all designed to help us uh, get more richness out of those themes biblically and draw closer to the Lord through the Christmas season. It's called Advent. And part of the symbolism that we also do, and we're doing this in all of our venues and campuses, is that we light an Advent candle each week leading up to Christmas that symbolizes that theme of, of hope, peace, joy, and love. So we lit one today, and then we have uh, light one next week and the following week and the following week. And then the fifth candle uh, is obviously symbolic of who. His name begins with a J. Say it with me. Jesus. Because that's where we're leading up to is the birth of Jesus Christ. So, you know, it, this is a, a part of many people's Christian traditions. Bible churches many times don't do this because we're rather non-traditional in nature. But it was my decision this year to celebrate Advent as, as a meaningful way to help some of us, uh, all of us hopefully, but enter into the Christmas season with some more meaning and profundity. So I hope that you utilize it that way. My prayer is God will draw you closer to him uh, in the process, okay? So the first theme is hope, one of my favorite subjects of all time. And so let's bow and pray right now and we're gonna dive right in. Father God, I thank you for the Christmas season that, that we uh, celebrate as we make our way toward the day that we set aside to honor the birth of Jesus Christ. And Father, as I said in one of our Winter Wonder programs this week, you know, Christmas wasn't designed to be an observance. 
It was designed as something to be engaged with because Jesus didn't come to be observed. He, he came for us to believe and trust and place our faith in him and give our lives to him. So I pray that that message, that I, idea, that reality would be uh, very prominent here at our church this Christmas season. As we dive in, Lord, to your word right now, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. So as we kick off our Advent season today, beginning with this reality of hope, let's define the term before us. I can't stand it when preachers or anybody gives a talk and uses a term over and over again that we haven't first defined. And years ago, I came up with a good working definition from the Bible of what hope is. And it's one of my wife's favorite definitions I've ever come up with. But really, this is a distillation of what the Bible says. And here's what I believe the Bible says. And that is that hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. I know that sounds like craziness, but hang with me here. You're going to get it. Hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. Now, to fully understand this definition, before we even apply it to Christmas and to Jesus, we need to recap a story that many of us might be familiar with. It's the story of Abraham, all the way back in the Old Testament. Because Abraham, more than probably any other Old Testament character, leads us to an understanding of what hope really is from God's perspective. You might remember the story. Abraham lived thousands of years ago, way back in the book of Genesis, and he was called by God at the ripe old age of 75 to leave his homeland, the town of Haran, to inherit a much better land and begin an entirely new nation. In fact, God made him two promises. He said, if you follow me to this new land, you will become the founder and the father of a new nation, which, as we all know, would become eventually the nation of Israel. And so what a great challenge and calling. So Abraham took God up on his call. He left his home. He packed up all his extended family. He didn't have any kids himself. He had a wife, Sarah, but no kids yet. And he packed up all his extended family and his possessions, and he headed out toward the land that God promised him. It was called the land of Canaan. There was only one problem. When he got to this land and he started surveying it, he realized that this land was already inhabited by a very powerful people known as the Canaanites. And having no resources to take over this country, Abraham becomes a desert wanderer for 25 years, waiting for God to do something to fulfill his promise. Now, during this time that Abraham was waiting to become the founder and father of a new nation, there were two problems in his mind. For years on end, 25 years, Abraham thought about these two problems. And the first one was, how can I be the founder of a land already inhabited by a people? I mean, I'm a small little clan, and there's this entire nation that God says he's going to you know, get rid of and allow me to inhabit this land. How's that going to work? But even more important, he wondered, secondly, how can God make me the father of a new nation? Watch this. When my wife, Sarah, and I have no kids. And do the math. Abraham left Haran when he was 75 years old. 
He wandered in the desert for 25 years. Let's add that up. 75 plus 25 is what? Carry the one. A hundred. And so Abraham is a hundred years old. His wife, Sarah, is 90 years old. They've been wandering in the desert for 25 years, waiting to get pregnant. And they're wondering, how is God going to pull this off? I mean, even in our modern day, do we all understand that a 90-year-old woman getting pregnant is not very likely? The Guinness World Book of Records, I checked it again yesterday, cites that the oldest woman to ever get pregnant and give birth that we know of is 66 years old. And she did it with in vitro fertilization. The oldest woman to ever have a baby without any help at all is 59 years old in our modern age. And so every time Abraham asked God about this, hey, how's Sarah going to get pregnant? How are we going to have kids? He said, don't worry, trust me. You see, pause for one second here. That's really relevant to some of our lives today, isn't it? Some of you are facing what you see as insurmountable odds in your life right now. Your marriage, your kids, your job that's difficult, or maybe the emotions that plague you, your past that you can't seem to get over. Whatever it might be, you're facing some insurmountable odds and you're thinking there is no way from a human perspective that I am ever going to see the light of day on this one. We can relate to Abraham. Now, with all this backdrop, I want you to listen now to what the New Testament says about Abraham at this exact time in his life. This is going to propel us into our definition of hope. Look at what Romans chapter 4 verse 18 says about Abraham back in the book of Genesis. It says, in hope, against hope, Abraham believed in order that he might become a father of many nations. Focus on that phrase, in hope against hope. The NIV says it a bit more plainly. The New International Version says against all hope. But I like what this does here in the NASB because it, it follows the literal Greek, which uses this word hope twice, once in a positive way and once in a negative way. It's saying in hope against hope hope, Abraham believed. What is it saying there? It's saying that that against impossible odds, insurmountable hurdles, seeing no way that God was going to pull this one off, Abraham still hoped. He still held the faith. He, He still hung on. He still kept on and persevered. He hoped against all hope. And God did come through. Based on Abraham's hope and his ability to wait, after wandering in the desert for 25 years, a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man had a baby. It's a miracle of God. And do you remember what they called him? Abraham's son was Isaac. Did you guys go to Sunday school? Abraham's son was Isaac. And Isaac in the Hebrew, some of you might know this, means what? Laughter. And the reason is, is because when Abraham first told Sarah of God's promise that she was going to have a kid, you know what she did? She laughed. And God didn't find it funny. And so the irony there is that to kind of rub it in to Sarah to say, you know what? You laugh when you get God's promises. We're going to call this kid laughter to remind us 
that God always is good for his promises. Now, the question that I want us to wrestle with, now that we kind of get the gist of, of this story here of Abraham, is how could Abraham hope against hope? You need to be wrestling with that right now. I mean, as I said earlier, some of you are facing insurmountable odds in your own life. And if you're tracking with me at all, it's a lot easier said than done to say, well, just hope that things will turn out better. Just place your faith in God and everything will turn out. I mean, we're better than that. We're smarter than that. There has to be something more rich in this idea of hope than just do it. There's something to hope that we need to understand that I believe Abraham understood. I'm going to show you this in black and white here in a second that allows us to hope even against all hope. And it goes back to our definition. Can we go back to the definition here? And that is that hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is even unseen. See, that's what Abraham did that allowed him to hope. I want to break this definition down into bite-sized chunks right now and very briefly look at each one of them, and then we're going to turn to the Christmas story. Uh, first, notice that the first part of hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances. And then the, the second part, as we draw a line here, is to that which is unseen. Let's understand each of these separately. First, hope is the ability to look beyond your present circumstances. In other words, as simple as it sounds, hope is simply the, 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 the choice that you and I make to look up from our circumstances in the here and now to something on the horizon. And the second that you do that, hope begins to set in. And when you look closely at the story of Abraham, this is exactly what he was doing. We don't have time to read it, but you can read it on your own maybe sometime this week. The story of Abraham is contained in Genesis chapters 12 through 19. And during those 25 years that Abraham's wandering in the desert, it was not a cakewalk. This wasn't like Scottsdale Desert that he was living in at that time. I mean, he dealt with kings who wanted to steal his wife. He found himself in the middle of, of a small war between two nations. He was dealing with corrupt nations like Sodom and Gomorrah. They experienced a harsh famine. He saw some of his relatives taken into captivity. Anybody have all oh, that happen to them in Scottsdale lately? No. So when we say that Abraham was a desert wanderer, it was a very difficult 25 years in the desert for him. And here's the point. He didn't get bogged down in all of that. As the Bible says, during all of that, he maintained his hope. In hope against hope. He still believed God's promises. And the reason is simple. His eyes were not on his circumstances. His eyes were not on the warring nations or his relatives in captivity or the famine or, or anything like that. His eyes were elsewhere his eyes were on God and his promise. It was his ability to see beyond his present circumstances that gave Abraham the hope that he had. You know, this might be a, a very simple analogy, but I, I can remember it like it was yesterday, and, and it's very real to me, and, and I think it will relate to some of you that have children or grandchildren as you observe them. When my kids were really young, one of the things Kim and I loved to observe in their life when they were toddlers was this incredible learning curve 
that they would be on. Do you all know what I'm talking about? Like, like whether it was learning to tie a shoe or use a computer or write numbers and letters or even how to control the, the TV and other electronics, the kids are so curious and they're constantly you know, pushing things and touching things and trying to learn how things work. And it was fun to watch the light go on there in their heads when they would do it. But there was also another side to it and that's that it could be very frustrating for them to learn new things. I can remember one time I was sitting in my home in Detroit where I was a pastor when I first started this work and my girls were very young, maybe four and two, and I was watching TV and I hear this blood-curling scream from the other room. And I thought maybe the dog bit the kid or a shard of glass hit him or something because it was just this, this huge scream. So I jump out of my couch and I run into the other room and, and there's my daughter Hannah and she's on the ground on bended knee, and I'm not going to do that because of my arthritis. And so I, uh, I, I, she's on the ground uh, looking at her shoe, and, and her shoe is untied like this. And, and she's looking at her shoe screaming, I can't tie my shoe. And we had already taught her how to tie her shoe, so we realized then she was going to be a slow learner. And, uh, and, and no, that's not true. And... Uh, and, 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 and she's looking at her shoe, and she's screaming and can't tie my shoe. And I very calmly said, well, Hannah, I think I know how. She cut me off. She said, no, Dad, you don't understand. I can't tie my shoe. I've been trying to tie my shoe, and I can't tie my shoe. I said, Hannah, it's okay. I know. No, Dad, you don't understand. I've been trying to do it, and I can't tie my shoe. And, and tears are coming down her face. She's looking at her shoe, just screaming that she can't tie it. Very dramatic. And so I did what I would do thousands of times over the years, especially with my girls, you know, and, uh, and, and that's that when they would get very dramatic and, and emotional about something, I would say, look at me. And for a second, Hannah wouldn't do it. She kept looking at her shoe and saying, but you don't understand. I said, no, Hannah, stop. Look at me. And eventually she would look up with me. And can't you just picture a toddler doing this? She was not smiling. She was mad at me that I made her look at me. And she would look at me and say, what? And I would say, Hannah, I know how to tie a shoe. I've been doing this for a long time. And I've showed you how to do it before. I'm going to show you how to do it now. And you're going to get this. And we're going to tie it together right now. And I promise you we can fix this. Now, folks, watch this very carefully. Before I even tied her shoe, before we did anything about the mess around her foot, just by the fact that she looked up to her father, I could see a change in her countenance. The tears started to dry up. The panic started to subside. What was she experiencing? Say the word with me. It's our first theme of Advent, hope. She was starting to get hope that maybe, just maybe, we could tie this shoe with her father's help. And sure enough, we then reached down and tied her shoe, and she was able to move on. But analyze that. The only thing that gave her hope, way before we even fixed the problem at hand, was looking up. And I ask you, could it be the same with us and God? I think it is. I don't think this is pop psychology. I don't think this is a, a little relational trick. I think this is deeply rooted in the scriptures that God says you and I get way too mired in our circumstances. We get way too focused on the world, way too focused on ourselves, way too focused on the things around us, and we fail to look up to him and we wonder why we have no hope. 
Hope is the ability to look beyond your present circumstances. And the second that you do that, hope begins to kick in. Now, you'll notice that there's a second part to hope, and that is the, it's the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. And this, by the way, is what makes hope what I call a biblical paradox. If you look up the word paradox in the dictionary, it's going to give you a two-word definition. A paradox is a seeming inconsistency, right? A paradox is something in which initially you look at it and you go, this doesn't make sense, it's gobbledygook, these two things don't match. But upon further reflection, you realize it's a seeming inconsistency, they do go together. So hope is the ability to see the unseen, and that's what makes it biblical hope, Hope that God is into, let me explain. What we're saying by, about this is that when you and I dare to look up to God beyond our present circumstances, let's just all be very honest in the house of God here today and at our other places, we don't always see things very clearly. Can you own that with me today? And by the way, that's very biblical. Look at what 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, referring to heaven, we will see face to face. For now, we know in part, but then, meaning in heaven, I shall know fully, just as I have been fully known. So the Bible affirms that you and I are finite creatures, God is infinite, we are not, and that even when we look up to him, at best, things are gonna be hazy. At best, we're not gonna fully see what the path is before us that he might have for us. And that's why we call it faith, and that's why we call it hope. In a very real sense, now don't miss this, gang, when God asks you and I to look up to him, we're looking at him, but we're looking at him who is both unseen and even what he wants to do in our lives is not yet realized, and it's also unseen. But it's important for him and for us that we still look up anyways. This is eminently biblical. Look at how the Bible in Romans 8 defines hope. It says in Romans 8, 24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? Ah, there it is. So hope is the ability to look beyond your present circumstances. You don't want to get mired in those, but you're looking to that which is not completely or fully seen. You're looking to God on the horizon and you're trusting in his promises, in his goodness, in his plan, even though you do not fully see or know what that plan is or how he might fulfill his promise in your life. And you don't actually see God because God is spirit. But you trust him and you trust his promises even though you don't fully know what all that is going to entail for your life specifically. But hope clings to that which is unseen. Some of you are frightening me in this right now. I can tell by your look. You're giving me a very blank stare. And so, and, and, and Chapel, you got, I can see you guys too. And you're giving me a blank stare. So let me give you an analogy that years ago helped me understand this idea of hope. Uh, it's hard for you guys to picture this, but about 30 years ago and about 60 pounds ago, I used to run marathon races 
all of us tend to be ex-athletes, and myself is included. And uh, when I was really young, as I've said before, I was very small, and so I wasn't very good for a lot of contact sport, but I could run. And I could run fast, and I could run long. And so that's what I did. And when I was in college and seminary, I would run about 8 to 10 miles a day. And I figured if I can do that, I can run 26.2 miles. And so a couple of times I, I ran in a marathon race. And I did learn rather quickly that a marathon is different than training 8 to 10 miles a day. 26.2 miles in one stretch is a long time. In fact, uh, the, the stories tell us from back in Greek mythology that the very first person that ran a marathon died at the end of it, which is not very encouraging, but, but that is exactly what a marathon does to you. And when you run a marathon, uh, the experts will tell you you eventually hit, at about the 20-mile mark, what they call the wall. Some of you are familiar with it. The wall is a point that you get to in your marathon run or race in which you are physically and emotionally depleted. And I experienced that. At about the 20-mile mark, I, I couldn't go any further. I, I thought, I, I have nothing left. It's like hitting a wall. And yet somehow you have to get through the wall if you're going to finish your 26.2-mile run or race. And so they give you a couple of tricks to do so. And one of the tricks that worked for me, and I read this in Runner's World years ago, is they said, when you hit the wall, in your mind's eye, envision the finish line. Envision it. And so I can remember in the Cleveland Revco Marathon back in the mid-1980s, I hit the wall, and I said, okay, I'm going to picture the finish line. And then I realized there's only one problem. I'd never seen the finish line. <laughs> yeah, you guys laughed, but that was a bad problem to have. I... I was running in this race and I realized that the finish line was not where the starting line was and so I'm supposed to finish, envision a finish line that I had never seen. And so you know what I did? I conjured up images of what I knew finish lines were like. I started envisioning a banner saying finish <laughs> with little ropes along the side that runners would run into. I envisioned cheering crowds that I knew would be there. And even my best friend, Bill, who would be the best man at my wedding, who promised me he would be at the finish line. I envisioned refreshment tables and bathrooms, you know, those, those portable commodes. And I pictured them, and I pictured me lying next to one, waiting for an EMT to come and <laughs> attend to me. I did. I, I pictured that. And, 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 I, and I thought, boy, that will be a glorious moment. And I, and I pictured the relief that would come as a result of all of these things. And to the best of my knowledge, I could be sure that these things would be there because I was told that they would be there. And these were the things that I focused on when I hit the wall, even though I couldn't see them visibly. And what do you think happened as I focused on these things? Say the word with me. It's our Advent theme. Hope began to well, began to well up in my soul. And I started to run with a little bit more freedom and a little lighter step in me, just a little bit, mind you, as I finish those last six miles. You see, that's what seeing the unseen is all about. This book is filled with promises of God to you. We're going to look at one as we wrap up here in just a second. And yet, let's face it, we don't know exactly how those promises will be fulfilled, do we? I love when Christians claim these promises. You know, God's going to do this in my life. I sit there and go, really? 
really, quote me that passage that tells you that he's going to do this. And they quote me a passage, and I go, well, that is a good, solid, general promise from God. But I'm not sure how he's going to fulfill that in your life. Isaiah, by his stripes we are healed. That's a promise. What does that healing mean? Is it physical? Is it emotional? Is it relational? Is it everything? I mean, what do the promises of God mean? Here's what I know after 53 years of living and 35 years of walking with him. He's good for his promises, but how he fulfills those in my life are up to him. My job is to look up, look to him, and hope for what he's going to do in my life. And that's exactly what Abraham did, isn't it? He didn't know how God was going to do it. Maybe God was going to have him adopt a kid. <laughs> Maybe God was going to do something else. He didn't know. In fact, at one point, this is, gets kind of rich, and you can again read about it, but at one point he thought, well, maybe I need a concubine and, and, and this woman, and, you know, and I thought, oh, dangerous territory there, and it was dangerous. And, and God said, no, I'm going to fulfill my promise in your life this way. And God is good for it. And he's good for it in your life. Now, let's tie this into Christmas and Jesus and why hope is the beginning theme of Advent. There's an amazing story tucked away in the middle of the birth narratives of Jesus, and it's a story that I don't hear talked about hardly ever at all. Can you imagine that? And yet it should be a story that you and I talk about regularly because it's all about hope and how powerful it is when we tie our hope to Jesus. And let me tell you the backdrop of this story. Jesus is about a month and a half old. And, and, you, and he's in Jerusalem at the temple to be dedicated at the temple as the firstborn son. Now, quick backdrop to that. Uh, we know from Jewish history, from the law, the Torah, that if you are a firstborn son or a son, you are circumcised on the eighth day. But then the law also says that 31 days later, you're to be presented at the temple with an offering of five shekels, kind of symbolic of Passover, as you present your firstborn son. And God will give you back your firstborn son, but you're presenting him as an offering to the Lord with a five shekel offering, this according to Numbers 18. But then also there's, around this time, the mother is to also present an offering of a lamb or a dove or a pigeon if you don't have enough money for a lamb. This is Leviticus chapter 12. So we know that Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are in Jerusalem. Jesus is about a month and a half. Why? Eight days circumcision, 31 days later, do the math, about 39 days, so just shy of a month and a half. And he is being presented at the temple along with five shekels according to Jewish law. And the mother is giving a redemption offering for herself of most likely, well, it tells us, of a dove or a pigeon. And this is why they're at the temple at this point. So let's pick up the action here in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, when they're at the temple. It says, And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Pause right there. We don't know anything about Simeon except what is told us here in Luke chapter 2. He's an unknown character in the New Testament. 
But they do, Luke does tell us quite a bit here. It tells us he was righteous. That's the Greek word dikao that means morally righteous. He was devout. That word appears only four times in the New Testament in the Greek, but it means religious. It means committed. So he's a very righteous and religious guy. Where the Holy Spirit was upon him in a special way. So he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a civic leader. He was a normal person like you and I, but probably more godly than most people. And he was looking, this is the key, for the consolation of Israel. Now, what's that? That word consolation is best translated probably comforting. He was looking for the comforting, the justification of Israel. Why would he be looking for that? Because in the first century, and again, we don't have time to go into all the details here, but just suffice it to say, in the first century, Israel was in really bad shape. Starting in 722 B.C., 700 years before the time of Jesus, Israel experienced a captivity from the Assyrians, and it was just downhill from there. First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, and so by the time of Jesus, there have been 700 years of onslaught against Israel in which the temple had been destroyed and rebuilt and people have been deported and then come back and now they're intermarrying. I mean, Israel is not what she used to be and things were a mess in the first century. And so many were hoping for the Messiah to come into the midst of this mess for the consolation, the comforting of Israel. So, before we move on to the next verse, just notice, this is really important, that Simeon is in hope mode. Give me a head now that you understand that. He's looking beyond his circumstances to God providing a Messiah. How do we know that? Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Whoa! So this dude is in massive hope mode. Uh, Simeon is in a mode where he's not going to get bogged down in all these years of exile, even the 400 years since they've even had a word from God that they could record in something like the Old Testament. He's not letting that get in the way. His eyes are beyond his circumstances, uh, looking to God who is unseen but has given some promises for a Messiah. And let's not sugarcoat this too much, because as I said to you, hope is not seen. So as Simeon is in hope mode, watch this, we know for probably a fact, 90% sure, that some of the things that he thought would happen, some of the things that he thought God would do, God was not going to do. The reason we know that is that the vast majority of religious people in the first century, when they were hoping for a Messiah, almost surely thought, that the Messiah was going to be a king like David, kicking out all the Greeks and Romans, setting up shop in Jerusalem, and bringing back the glory days of Israel. That's what they expected the Messiah to come and do. So, would he also forgive sins? Would he have a little something for the Gentiles? Yeah, all that too. But generally speaking, that's where their hope was, what was in. And Simeon was probably following suit in that his hope, which was not fully seen, was in God. But then, when Simeon, who was in full-blown hope mode here, focused on the Messiah, finally saw his hope realized, look at what happens. This is so important for you and I. 
It says in verses 27 to 32, And he, Simeon, came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, that's why it's important you guys knew what custom of the law meant, then he, Simeon, took Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. <laughs> I would submit to you that the insight that Simeon had here at Jesus' birth would take the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the disciples 30, 40, 50 years to latch on to. I mean, these words are prophetic. He's looking at Jesus and given revelation from God because it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's saying, my eyes now have seen your salvation. It was worth the wait. Jesus is the Messiah. But it's not a Messiah that's going to necessarily bring back the glory days of Israel. This Messiah is a light of revelation to the Gentiles for all people. He's going to do something to bring all people back into the fold, or at least potentially into the fold in relationship with God. And he's going to be the glory of Israel. You see, Simeon started to realize, don't miss this gang. That as his hope was focused on Jesus, now watch this, it was going to bring more to his life in this world than they could ever imagine. You see, sometimes we shoot way too low with God. I think the Jews in the first century, I mean, the Jewish leaders realized this after time. We know that people like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and people like that started to realize that, that, that just wanting another king like David were shooting kind of low. That what God wants to do is provide a savior for the whole world, somebody to bring me back into the fold through the forgiveness of my sins, but then have something to offer everybody else around me. I love it when people try to say to me sometimes, you know, that Christianity is really narrow-minded and exclusive and things like that. I go, wow, what Bible have you read? Because Christianity, as far as I read it, is the most inclusive, all-embracing faith or religion. I don't think it's a religion, it's a faith that's ever hit humankind. Because God sent Jesus to be the sole object of our hope and a hope that we can offer to everyone around us. Because when you do, you realize that salvation can be yours and a hope and a life this side of heaven with God at the center of it can be yours. But here's my parting thought before we go to the communion table. Now, this is what we've been leading to this whole time. And that is that your hope must be in Jesus. One of the dangers of a message like this and the definition I used earlier is that you could probably put my definition on Dr. Phil and many people would like it. Try it at work maybe tomorrow. Hope is the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. And people go, ooh, that's profound. I like that one. We ought to write that on a Hallmark card. That's a really good one, you know, or something like that. But they're reading it wrong because we're defining that which is unseen as God himself 
but even more specifically, God revealed in Jesus. What the Christmas story teaches us, what Simeon teaches us, is that all of us, even though we've seen the consolation of Israel come to fruition 2,000 years ago, let's face it, as I said earlier, there's plenty of consolations right now that are in need in our lives, aren't there? Your marriage is a mess. You're addicted to some nasty things you shouldn't be. Your kids or grandkids are in trouble. Your health is declining. Your relationships need work. Society is waning a little bit. Have you noticed that? There's lots of things around us in which we're crying out to God, please bring the consolation to our lives. Please bring the comforting to our life. You know what God says back to you? Are you hoping in my son? Or are you hoping, hoping in the government? Are you hoping in my son? Or are you hoping in your church? Are you hoping in my son? Or are you hoping in your wonderful innate abilities to make things happen? See, there's lots of choices you and I have every day. This isn't a quake candle that we light the first Sunday of Advent. This is a rugged aspect of faith, this idea of hope, in which you and I get a chance to apply it every day, each moment of every day, and ask ourselves, are we like Simeon, focused on the Messiah, the Jesus who has come and will come again, waiting for the consolation that only he can bring? Or are we trusting in all the other things around us? In hope against hope. Abraham believed and became the father of many nations. Simeon waited for the consolation of Israel with his eyes set solely on Jesus, not knowing completely who he was going to be or what he was going to do, but that's where his hope rested. And it's still going on today, and God is good for it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this amazing entity called hope that you have blessed us with and the capacity that we have, especially as followers of Jesus, who likewise have the Holy Spirit resting upon us, as Simeon did, uh, to hope against all hope. And God, I have to believe that there are some of us here today that need a real infusion of hope into our lives. We've given in to despair. We've, we've struggled with disillusionment. And God, we realize that our souls need hope. Lord, if nothing else, may we walk away from our study today realizing that our hope is best nurtured when it's focused on Jesus and all that he can bring. May that be where our hope resides. And Lord, may we see, like Simeon did, the fruition of our hope, even this side of heaven, as we hope and trust in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and I hope we can all say together, Amen.